Hello and welcome to Life Learnings. I'm Barry Harker and my guest today is Ian Barrett. Ian is a medical scientist working for Sand Pathology. He works in clinical haematology and blood banking. He has a Bachelor of Applied Science in Medical Laboratory Science from the University of Tasmania and a Master of Medical Science from the University of Newcastle. Ian was influenced to work in medical science by a friend, Graham Weir, who has been a guest on Life Learnings. Ian was involved with four Operation Open Heart trips to Port Moresby from 2010 to 2013, and also in four Fly and Hear visits to India from 2001 to 2007. Today I'll be speaking with Ian about these trips and about his work, his life and his Christian commitment. Welcome Ian, great to have you in the studio today. Good morning Barry. Ian, tell me about the time you were marooned in a Himalayan village with only enough money for a jeep or a mule ride out when the road reopened following a landslide. Ah, Barry, that was quite a memorable event. I had been in India on another volunteer stint working for an Asian aid clinic in Missouri, northern India. Uh, A week before Christmas, my mate and I decided to trek to uh, the summit of a local peak, Nagtipa, that was about uh, 3,050 metres high, so not exactly Everest. But as I found much later, it was about a 50 kilometre round trip on foot. Anyway, we caught a bus to a little village called Tatua, and in a beautiful, lush, uh, wide open valley. We then uh, disembarked and we had to hike about 13 or 14 k up to a place called Dewalsari, where there's a forest rest house. And we stayed the night there. Uh, I won't go into details there, but that was also quite memorable. And uh, we set off the next morning quite ill-prepared, and I think my, my friend, who was one of the locals, had never actually been there. Anyway, we didn't get very far before it started snowing, as I think I said, it was a week before Christmas. And uh, so we had to retreat back to the rest house and uh, hike back down to the village. So when we got there, the weather was poor, we discovered there'd been a landslide and there was no traffic in or out. So we had to bunk up in a what they call a, um, a, a go-down, which is like a little almost like a garage with a roller on the front that shopkeepers use. And uh, I also managed to contract Delhi Belly. At the same time? At the same time, yes. <laughs> so how long were you there, Ian? We were there two or three days, but uh, they seemed like very long days. We were running out of money. I felt crook. And uh, we were sort of contemplating, you know, do we try and get a mule ride out? It was quite a way, like 20 kilometres up to the main road. Anyway, just when things were looking fairly grim, they reopened the road sufficiently for jeeps to get through, and I think we managed to get on the first one, a short wheelbase hardtop jeep with a roof rack. Would you believe, Barry, that there was 21 of us on board with luggage? (laughs) (laughs) I guess this would be uh, an experience you'd never forget. Yes, I was sitting on the bonnet, I think, the most uncomfortable trip I've ever done, and uh, I've never been so relieved to be on a bonnet. (laughs) (laughs) Ian, 
you're facing retirement, but about to undertake another adventure, a different type to the one that you've just described to us. You're about to become a dad to four teenage children. How did this come about? Uh, well, Barry, my <clears throat> my wife is Indian, my wife Zawali, and early this year we learnt that her youngest sister, Viari, was terminally ill with cancer. Viari was a single mum with four teenage children. Mm-hmm. So we were able to go over there to India and, and be with her on her deathbed. A uh, very sad and traumatic occasion for all concerned. But uh, as a result of that, we've decided to take those four uh, kids under our wing. So Uncle Ian is about to become dad. So are they coming to Australia to live? Uh, at this stage, God willing, the two middle ones, which are the two girls, will be coming to Australia early next year. Mm-hmm. And uh, we plan to put them through Avondale College. That's a, that's a very sad, very sad situation, but um, it's great that you're able to actually fit into that, um, into that situation and, and help clearly a, a situation um, that would be very distressing to the children as well. I think mm. that's a great thing that you're doing. Mm, thanks, Barry. Ian, tell me about your involvement with Operation Open Heart. Now it's called Open Heart International and Papua New Guinea. What was your role? Uh, well, <clears throat> let me give you a bit of background about Operation Open Heart. Uh, it's a surgical uh, medical outreach uh, done under the auspices of Sydney Adventist Hospital. Mm-hmm. And as the name suggests, it started with open heart surgery. So uh, Operation Open Heart provided surgical teams to quite a number of destinations around the South Pacific and Southeast Asia. Uh, a few years ago, I was tapped on the shoulder by the lab manager where I work, and he said, Ian, how would you like to go to Port Moresby with Operation Open Heart? So after a little bit of hesitation, because it was not really my field, but I said, well, yep, I'll put, put me in. So uh, that's how it kicked off. My role uh, with Operation Open Heart was officially as a pathology liaison person. Mm-hmm. So that role involved taking over with me a little portable uh, blood gas analyzer, which is used in the surgery and also in ICU. I had to take that over, set it up, uh, train some of the uh, nurses in how to operate it. The other part of the role, equally important, was that I had to liaise with the local pathology service particularly with the blood banking side. I had to make sure that before each surgery the blood was ready for cross-matching and transfusion, mm-hmm. if necessary, and uh, just generally looking after the pathology side of things, making sure that results were received back uh, in a timely fashion, which uh, in some of these destinations is not to be taken for granted. Now, Open Heart International teams are still visiting countries in our region, and I think even further afield. Apart from the medical outcomes, what are the benefits of this program do you see? Uh, Yes, just uh, as far as destinations, we've got Fiji, Vanuatu, Tonga, Vietnam, uh, Burma or Myanmar was added recently, and we go as far as uh, Rwanda. In fact, recently we started a program in the Philippines for eye surgery. Mm -hmm. 
uh, your question about um, outcomes, apart from the the dramatic change of life for the recipients, and they're mostly children, by the way, these are life-changing surgeries for often for birth defects and so on. Uh, the other the other role of Operation Open Heart is to train up local teams of surgeons and nurses to be able to uh, have a self-sufficient and sustainable program in their own nation. Now, moving to something a little different, but it's similar, um, tell me what a fly-and-hear trip is. Well, some of your re- some of your listeners might be familiar with uh, flying bills. Uh, flying here involved assembling a team of people to go over to India in this case, and run a uh, a mobile audiology service. So what we were doing was we were we were testing people's hearing, uh, again mostly children, and we were then able to provide them hopefully with uh, hearing aids. And uh, as you can imagine, this is also fairly life-changing. The, uh, particularly in childhood, a lack of hearing has a huge impact on education, socialisation and even career options. Mm. So that was what uh, Flying Hears are all about. So how did you come to be involved? Uh, well, my friend uh, Graham Weir was to blame. Actually, my father-in-law was deaf, which Graham knew about. And uh, on one of our trips to India to visit family, Graham, who had by then moved to Perth, said, hey, why don't you come via Perth and I'll give you some equipment. You can take it over and you can test your father-in-law and uh, when you get back, we can fit in with hearing aids. Mm-hmm. So that's how it started. And... Uh, we, we got to Perth, we had a good time in Perth where we'd never been before and Graham gave us the uh, supplies to be able to go and make the, uh, the hearing impressions and we were able to get him tested locally with some difficulty and ultimately he was fitted with hearing aids. So what role did you specifically perform in those flying here visits later? Uh, my role I guess initially was to be uh, organising the travel arrangements, provide some of the funding for the equipment and and for airfares. And um, also Graham trained me up to be able to perform some of the more basic testing. So where did you supply these services in India? Well, initially it was to an Asian aid school in South India, a place called Kamagiri, Graham had read about this in the record and he was all fired up with... The record being a church paper. Uh, Yes, that's right. And uh, there was a report about a new school that had opened for the deaf and Graham was all fired up. He wanted to go there. It was his passion, you know, so uh, that's how it came to be planned. So we ran a program in Kamagiri, which was a little village in South India, and uh, we were able to fit many of those children with hearing aids. And we then moved on by a long cross-country train trip to Eyesore, uh, where my wife comes from. Again, we set up a community clinic and we did the same thing again there. Now, who provided the ongoing support? Uh, in the case of the school children, 
we visited the All India Institute of Speech and Hearing in Mysore and uh, they agreed to take on board the ongoing maintenance and retesting of the children. Mm-hmm. Now, moving on, your wife Suwali is from India. How did you meet her? Ah, well, back in 1988, I was recruited for a volunteer stint at an Asian aid clinic in Missouri, northern India. I was interested in medical things by then, and uh, it was a working holiday. That's how we met. A very interesting experience. Missouri is sort of within sight of the main range of the Himalayas, and uh, it was a, a quite a life-changing experience in many ways. Now, she's a nurse, isn't she, and a midwife? Yeah, that's right. She provided a very basic service to a disadvantaged group up in the hills there, and uh, sometimes delivering babies on a dirt floor with a bucket of boiling water. Hmm. Now, you met your father-in-law for the first time on your trip to India in 2000. Tell me about that experience. Yes, well, actually, uh, Zaluta, as his name was, on that occasion, he he was not only deaf, as you mentioned, but uh, he was turning 100, would you believe? So uh, we went over there for his centenary, and that was the first time I'd met the Mm in-laws. So um, Tell me about him. Uh, he's a, a great old guy. At, at age 100, he was still active, taking an active interest in all things around him, still had all of his marbles, uh, could still read the morning paper, could still get up and make a speech. And, uh, yeah, fascinating character. From 2008 to 2011, you did a stint as an online motoring journalist for Nextcar. How did you come to be doing this? <laughs> Yeah, that certainly came out of left field. Uh, I guess I had a little bit of a a talent, perhaps, for writing. And uh, one of my neighbours had a a male friend who happened to be the editor of Next Car. And and Stephen just lived and breathed all things motoring. Mm -hmm. And uh, initially he recruited me on a few occasions to go and pick up cars from uh, from the press offices. And uh, then one day he presented me with a car that I had for the whole week. And I had to drive it, photograph it, review it and write it up. And that's how it all started. So were you interested in motoring prior to this? Uh, I guess being a boy, I'm, I'm interested in all things engineering. But I wouldn't have said particularly uh, that field. But yes, I was interested enough to give it a go. I reckon that uh, some people would think this was a pretty good job, just being able to pick up new cars, drive them around, go on trips, maybe have a weekend away, Mm -hmm. take some photographs and write up a report. Were you doing this part-time or was this full-time? I was doing this part-time while I was working full-time in sand pathology. And and actually, I've got to say, it's hard work. It's not as easy as it looks, very time-consuming. So describe to me what you would do with, um, with, with, a, with a review for a vehicle. Uh, I'd, <clears throat> I'd pick up a vehicle from usually somewhere in Sydney and uh, I would have to put, say, between 500 and 1,000 kilometres on it during the week. I'd have to note all its good and bad features 
And uh, I'd also have to think about uh, where would be the best place to photograph it, the most suitable backdrop for that type of vehicle. And I would then have to go there when the lighting was at its best and to take the photo. So, uh, And then, of course, you had to write up the report, which are about a 1,000 words. Uh, but, yeah, all this was very time-consuming. Well, I read a couple of your reviews and I almost wanted to go out and buy a new car. <laughs> <laughs> so you, 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 write, you, you write extremely well. Uh, thank you. Now, we're going to just have a look at um, your career now. After completing your high school certificate, you worked as a trainee cartographer. Tell me about that. Yes, well, <clears throat> throughout high school I was uh, interested in geography, probably my favourite subject. But I had no particular career interests uh, like many high school students. Uh, in those days, you could take your pick of, of job offers and traineeships almost, and I was more interested in engineering. But I ended up taking a job as a trainee cartographer. And uh, back in those days, in the 70s, cartography was sort of the flavour of the week. The government was interested in completing the whole state mapping program and a lot of funding was devoted to that end so uh, again I jumped on board there. Now I think you started work in Bathurst wasn't it? Uh, actually started in Sydney but we soon relocated to Bathurst. Okay. It was the grand uh, relocation scheme. So tell me what you actually did. I mean I imagine things would have changed quite dramatically over the last 30 years or so. Yeah, that's right. Uh, when I first started, I was in the cadastral section, which is looking at property boundaries. And believe it or not, some of those maps were uh, produced on waxed linen, uh, being the most stable medium available at the time, and all done in pen and ink. Uh, in fact... You so how old would they have been? Oh, some of them would have been uh, up to 20, 30, 40 years old, mm -hmm. with lots of amendments. In fact, if you had to make an amendment, sometimes you had to cut a hole in the linen, glue a patch in, and then redo the artwork. And it was it was all copper plate script, almost like Captain Cook would have used. By hand? By hand. Mm. Things would have changed dramatically now, wouldn't they? Yes, it's all computerised now. Uh, always, it was always based on aerial photography from my era. And... Uh, but nowadays it's all computerised. So how long did you work as a cartographer? Uh, I worked from uh, 71 to 89, so almost 20 years. So you're very experienced yes, in that field. Yeah. And we're going to talk about your medical career, medical science career, a little bit um, later. Now, you grew up in an Anglican family in Sydney... At 20 years of age, you made a commitment to Christ as your personal saviour, but you said, but not quite as your Lord. What do you mean by that? Uh, well, I guess I, I came to an acknowledgement and a realisation that Christ was my uh, personal saviour and I needed a saviour. But uh, when I say that, there was a fairly incomplete understanding of what it meant to be a Christian and what... Uh, what God really required of us. It was just the beginning of a spiritual journey. 
I had had a Christian upbringing through Sunday school and church and uh, christened and confirmed and so on. So I did have that background. Mm. Now, in your late 20s, you had a conversion experience, which included a commitment to keep the Ten Commandments. Tell me about that. Uh, yes, at that, at that time, I was, uh, I was going through a few personal issues, and um, my idea of abundant living, abundant Christian living, was a life filled with activity and adventure canoeing and trail bike riding and travel and so on, uh, I found really that that was somewhat dissatisfying. But uh, as, I, as I studied my Bible for myself, I began to feel a, quite a strong conviction about some aspects of my own life. And uh, it was that that uh, opened my eyes really to uh, the kind of person I was and I guess the the kind of person I was perhaps becoming, uh, and I was not happy. I recognised then that uh, things were a little bit out of my own control. I needed uh, I needed a power from outside of myself, really, to turn myself around. And that's when I really called upon Christ to uh, to transform me and do for me what I was unable to do for myself. Now, as a Christian, you would have recognised the importance of the Ten Commandments prior to that. But what particular aspect of the Ten Commandments was important to you at this time? Uh, quite a number of them, but, uh, you know, we, we get to hear about them in the Anglican Communion, but uh, you don't really apply them to yourself. Uh, one or two of those I particularly felt feel a conviction about. And um, anyway, I, I resolved to turn from sin and follow Christ. And I, I think really the Ten Commandments define what's right and wrong. Okay. Now, how did you come to be interested in medicine? Uh, I guess really the commitment to Christ turned around my thinking I had a different set of motivations, a bit of a different worldview. And, uh, you know, the Ten Commandments really define love, love for God and love for our fellow man. Mm -hmm. I guess that that led to really a, a much more genuine interest in other people and not so much focus on self. Mm -hmm. And uh, also at that stage I, uh, I had my eye on a young deaf lady in my workplace so here we are maybe not quite the right motivation but um, I do recall being troubled by this and I set aside a day of prayer and fasting over the issue and uh, the very next day I happened to be visiting a friend and I spotted a, a book on his shelf called None of These Diseases by S.I. Macmillan uh, I went home with that book and uh, none of these diseases talks about uh, the relationship between lifestyle and thinking and our health. Mm -hmm. So I know the book, actually. Yeah, yeah highly I, recommended. Yeah, very interesting. Mm. And so, of course, that, that opened my eyes to the possibility of medicine uh, as a ministry. And it sort of... Uh, it gradually developed from there. Now you tried to enrol 
in university here in New South Wales, mm. but you ended up going to Tasmania. Tell me about that. Yeah, initially I applied uh, to study medicine at the University of Newcastle and uh, as a mature age entrant, uh, I missed the cut. And so there was a period of time when I, I just left that alone, but I was still interested. In fact, I studied naturopathy, uh, but I found that although I finished the course, uh, there were some what I viewed as serious limitations there. So eventually I decided to do biomedical science. And how did I get to study in Tasmania of all places? Well, it turned out that TAFE had lost all record of my results from cartography. I don't know what the explanation was, a fire in the basement or something, and I was unable to get my uh, general application in uh, by the deadline. Graham and Diane, who had recently moved to Tasmania, said, well, why don't you come and do it here? You're single, you've, you're free, you can move around. And he said, the application doesn't close until February. So I thought, OK, fair enough. So as it turned out, the application was accepted. In fact, I was accepted by a telephone interview. And so I headed off to Tasmania. And that was to study a degree in, that was to get a degree in applied science, wasn't it? That's right, a Bachelor of Applied Science in uh, Medical Laboratory Science. Now, you married Zawali in 1991 in New Zealand. She's from India. How did you get to marry in New Zealand? <laughs> yeah, good question. Well, uh, obviously I had uh, I'd popped the question a year or two earlier, uh, but uh, the relationship had sort of stalled a little. Uh, through distance and uh, she was invited to go and study in New Zealand by a mutual friend and so uh, I headed over to New Zealand and, and things got back on track but the immigration department at the time wrongly advised me about the uh, the time that it might take to get a fiancé visa and so for safety's sake we really had to plan a wedding in New Zealand and we were married in uh, uh, June 91 in Tauranga, New Zealand. Okay. Now, tell me about your career in clinical haematology and blood banking and how your career has actually developed in medical science. Uh, well, initially I, um, I did a stint in my holiday break at uh, Sand Pathology in Warunga, Sydney. And uh, when I graduated, I, I did another further stint there just as a, um, a, a fill-in role. And then I was able to land a job with Hampson Pathology in Newcastle. And uh, so that was the start of my uh, career there. I was in the uh, biochemistry department working uh, night shift. So, you know, that was a, a great start to a career, but night shift is very wearing after a while, mm. uh, just when I wondered how I could uh, keep going, I, I unexpectedly got a call from the lab manager in Sydney offering me a job in sand pathology, so it went from there. You know, at uni, uh, you major in all four major aspects of pathology, but to some extent it's the luck of the draw where you end up where you just have to wait until a vacancy uh, 
because I ended up in blood banking and haematology, which is quite an interesting field in its own right. So, Then you went on to complete a master's degree in medical science. Tell me about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, the master's degree in medical science was uh, begun during my time at Hampson's when I thought, oh, I can't do this for the rest of my life. And the major was in epidemiology and in health promotion, mm-hmm. which was an interest of mine which sort of fitted in with the whole medical mission aspect. So uh, once I completed that, I found that job openings were a little bit limited. So um, I didn't uh, switch careers again, but the lessons learnt there were quite useful in uh, particularly in the fly and hear Uh, operations that we ran. So describe what you actually do on a day-by-day basis in your job at Sound Pathology. Uh, Depending on uh, the situation when I first arrive, I may end up sitting at the microscope all day reviewing uh, blood films. Uh, Each person that gets a full blood count um, used to have a film made, so we stain the film up and we look at the we physically look at their blood to see if it correlates with the numbers. We don't necessarily review everyone nowadays, but uh, that was the case. If I'm not doing that, I might simply be feeding samples through the analyzers, uh, interpreting the results, reporting the results to the doctors. Uh, and my other role is in blood bank where we we need to screen patients and prepare uh, blood for possible surgery or, or transfusion. Okay. Do you enjoy this? Uh, I do, yes, I do. It's quite challenging and and um, you really feel like you've got a role to play there in the in the grand scheme of, of uh, helping people to recover from illness. Mm. I, I guess the other thing is that uh, I love the people I work with. You know, my wife once said to my workmates, you know, I, I love my job, but Ian loves the people he works with. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's a great environment. Ian, you're a creationist. What evidence do you see in your field of expertise that creation is the best explanation for the origin of life? Well, Barry, you know, you just can't help but see that the human body is the most complex and a wonderful machine. When you look at the complexity of it and how all the different systems interact so closely, it's all so finely balanced. You know, if you look at if you look at the human body as a machine, you could ask yourself if if it all just happened by chance, what came first, the uh, the skeleton or the muscles? And uh, you can see that really everything has to be in place all at once to, for life to function. We see that particularly in, uh, in the coagulation uh, process in the human body. If you cut yourself, you know, you, uh, your body rushes into action to form a clot and plug the leak. And that, that involves quite a complex process called the coagulation cascade where you've got platelets and fibrin and uh, a whole lot of clotting factors and even uh, chemicals from the injury itself all coming together rapidly to plug the leak and form a clot. 
But of course, you don't want the whole body to clot. So, you know, the whole thing's very finely balanced. If there's one thing lacking, nothing works. It's all or nothing. Mm. And it's incredibly complex, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So you couldn't have done it just step by step. It had to be in place all at once yeah. to actually, to actually mm-hmm. function. Is that where the creation, the creation concept actually applies at that point? Yeah, I think that there's a, a concept now called uh, intelligent design. And, and this was coined by evolutionists themselves, really, as, a, as an observational aspect of their science. You know, they ask themselves, well, uh, with such a finely tuned mechanism, which part can we remove and still have it work? And the analogy has been used of the mousetrap. Hmm. It's a very simple thing. Which, which bit can you leave out and it still functions as a mousetrap? Because that's a, a great simplification. So we're really saying you're really saying then that it's the irreducible complexity, that complexity of that system functioning together, that is the indication that it couldn't have happened in a stepwise fashion, but had to be put in place all at once. Yes, that's that's where I believe the evidence is pointing. I'm Barry Harker, and you're listening to Life Learnings on Three ABN Radio Network. My guest today is Ian Barrett. Ian is a medical scientist working in clinical haematology and blood banking. Ian has been involved with Operation Open Heart and flying here trips to India. He's also done a stint as an online journalist for Nextcar. We'll go to a break now. When we come back, I'll be talking with Ian about his early life and influences. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program... You can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 4973 3456. Our email address is radio at 3ABN That is radio at the number 3ABN Australia. All one word. .org.au Our postal address is 3ABN Australia Inc PO Box 752 Morissette, New South Wales 2264 Australia Thank you for your prayers and financial support If you've just joined us I'm Barry Harker and you're listening to Life Learnings on 3ABN Radio Network My guest today is Ian Barrett. Ian is a medical scientist working in clinical haematology and blood banking. Ian has been involved with Operation Open Heart and flying here trips to India. He's also done a stint as an online journalist for Nextcar. Our conversation will now turn to Ian's early life and influences. Ian, tell me about your early life. Uh, Well, Barry, I grew up in uh, suburban Eastwood in Sydney, uh, part of a working-class family. My dad was a fitter and machinist. My mum was a bank teller until uh, I arrived. Uh, life in those days for most kids was fairly uncomplicated. What was school like for you? Uh, I always enjoyed school. Primary school particularly was very enjoyable. Uh, you know, primary school then was philosophically more neutral than it is today. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was more about the three R's. 
when I got to high school, uh, you find that you're personally and intellectually challenged much more. So I didn't enjoy high school as much, but nevertheless I did uh, go through and finish the HSC. What was your favourite subject? Uh, I would say geography. And that's what led you into cartography? Yeah, that's right, yes. What were your interests as a child? Uh, I've always been an avid reader. In fact, if you ask my workmates, they'll say, Ian, don't take the newspaper to the tea room. You've only got 15 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Apart from that uh, sporting interest, uh, tennis and soccer I was into and uh, bicycling. Other children in the family? Uh, Yes, I've got a a younger brother and a sister. How did you get get on with them? Yeah, we always hit it off fairly well. Yeah, we had a good relationship. What what are some of your strongest memories as a child? Uh, That's a hard one, but I think um, probably family holidays. You know, actually, it's good to have a childhood where there's no traumatic memories. So my my memories are happy ones. Mm. But... uh, Family holidays were always a priority for my parents. So what did you do on your holidays? We'd always go to either the Blue Mountains if it was wintertime or we'd go to Avoca Beach if it was summertime. And uh, occasionally that alternated the seasons, uh, which was not always so good. But, yeah, family holidays were a big thing. Uh, That was a priority more than... Uh, material things, if you like. What did you like to read as a child? Uh, all sorts of things. Uh, adventure, adventure stories, lots of fiction. Uh, I was a big Biggles fan. And uh, later on in my teen years, I, I think I've read every Agatha Christie novel there is. But Now, uh, now you were influenced strongly by a couple of teachers... Tell me about that. In, in my high school years, I had a couple of science teachers who were, I guess you might call them uh, closet creationists, uh, a guy called Jim Spence and another one, uh, Richard Banner. These guys were active in the ISCF group, which is Inter, Inter-Schools Christian Fellowship. I was not really part of that, but they were just, I guess, a quiet influence. Uh, in those days, uh, evolution was really taught still as a theory and, uh, you know, they were sometimes highlighting some of the uh, awkward questions there. Looking back, can you see God working in your life at that time? Uh, yes, I think so. Um, my parents and grandparents' influence influence of school teachers, both primary and secondary. And mind you, I never went through uh, a church school system. Now even, I've got to mention, sometime in primary school, we had uh, what you folk used to call coal porters come to the door. And my parents bought a few interesting books for me, which I devoured. There's a couple of Uncle Arthur's bedtime storybooks. Mm-hmm. There was uh, Your Home and Health, which was a book by uh, Ellen White. 
and there was Highways to Happiness by C.L. Paddock. Some of your listeners may recall those. As a kid, I really devoured the stories in those and I feel like it influenced my thinking about what it meant to be a Christian, even if I didn't necessarily uh, choose to go down that pathway at the time. Early influences are always important, aren't they? We remember them. Um, it's like a foundation, a base, a base for our lives. Mm-hmm. By the time you'd arrived at adulthood, what was motivating you? Oh, I think uh, travel, money, uh, cars, friendships, and I guess uh, to some extent adventure activity as well. Uh, my friends and I were into trail bike riding and canoeing and we did a six-month uh, overseas holiday trip. Tell, me about, tell me about that. Yeah, that, um, that played a role, I guess, in my, my later conversion because at that stage I was a professed Christian and, you know, there's nothing like travel and living in each other's pockets, so to speak, to bring out the best and worst in people. And I, I began to see some serious uh, character deficiencies there. And also during that time, uh, we were involved in a very serious bus accident where uh, one or two people were killed. Unfortunately, most people survived, but it knocked me around quite a bit. That also got me thinking probably about uh, my life. Where was that? That happened in Canada between uh, Montreal and Ottawa. Uh, a lorry uh, pulled off onto the freeway in front of our bus and uh, with nowhere to go, the bus skidded sideways down the freeway at freeway speed and ended up rolling into a ditch. You know, no seatbelts, so we all get thrown everywhere. Uh, I, I'm very lucky to be alive, actually. Mm. Has your motivation changed over time? Uh, yeah, I think it has. You know, I'm much more, uh, much more people-oriented now, and I think that uh, faith in God, like a real active faith in God, changes your worldview about things. Uh, you know, there's a there's a saying that. Life is like uh, life is like arriving late for a movie, and then trying to figure out what's happening without asking too many questions, and then being called out before you see how it ends. I see, you know, far too many of my friends uh, are like that, and really we need a worldview that makes sense of the world we live in. So your so your Christianity has given you the capacity to understand the world mm. in a different way or to, to make the world coherent and uh, it also turns your motivation around so that you're more focused on people. Yeah, I think so. It helps you to understand yourself as well. You know, I, I'm by far my worst enemy. Tell me about Zuali's work. Uh, Zuali, as you said earlier, was a nurse and midwife in India. Uh, she works today uh, at both Sydney Adventist Hospital and on call at Wyong, and she specialises in post-operative care. So um, she works 
uh, with patients who've had major, usually major bowel surgery, mm-hmm. which is not everyone's cup of tea, but she loves it. Someone's got to do it. Someone's got to do it, and she's an award-winning nurse. Tell me about that. Uh, she won the inaugural mission ambassador at the SAN. Okay, so what what did she have to do to get that that award? I think that was uh, it was a combination of nursing skills and people skills that uh, they felt epitomised Christianity in action. So she's obviously a very competent, very caring person to get that sort of award. Mm, yes. I'd like you to tell me about your favourite Bible passage. Uh, well, there's a couple, I guess, that go together. Uh, John 10.10, 10, where Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, who wouldn't want that? And then the other passage would be uh, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Uh, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't rely on your own insight. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Again, if we had a choice, who would not want to go down that pathway? I guess it's a matter of, you know, can we trust God? Your second passage is was selected by a recent guest. It's, I think that's the first time that I've had a guest or two guests select the same passage. Ah. It is a significant passage, isn't it, really? Mm. Learning, to, learning to trust God, mm. to rely on him. Mm. And I think that idea that God came to give us abundant life is um, quite different from the way people sometimes view Christianity. I think they see it as a restricting thing. But God is actually telling us that if you follow his way, if you follow his law, which really, as you said before, encapsulates love, then it's liberating. Mm. It liberates, liberates you from yourself. It gives you the bigger picture that enables you to fit your life into that larger picture. Yeah, I, I think that sums things up very well, Barry. Um, it enables us to reach our full potential. And I, I've still got a way to go. What have you learned from your life, Ian, that you think we should all know? Yeah, that's a hard one. But I I think really the longer I live, the more I put God to the test and I feel like all of the Bible can be relied upon and, and trustworthy, whether it's touching on science. And, of course, the Bible is not a textbook, but whether it's science or history or or philosophy, or even human relationships, or health. I really feel more and more as if uh, the Bible is completely trustworthy and we can put our hands in in God's hands. Mm. You're a creationist, and um, when we talked about this, um, you said that one of your favourite hymns is This Is My Father's World. Well, I think this is a, probably a good, a good point to actually play that hymn. And it's sung by Cecily Harker. Here it is. This is my father's world.
Ian, why is that your favourite hymn? Uh, Barry, I think that that hymn reminds us that our world is not just a random and meaningless uh, system. The the events and the the happenings in our lives and in our world um, are leading somewhere. They're not just random. And I think we need a worldview that really can make sense, as I said before, of the world in which we live. Uh, and of course, musically, I like the I like the music of that hymn as well. No use having great words uh, if no one can sing it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Now I want you to tell me about the impact that Christianity, the Bible, your your conversion has had on your life. Summarize it for us, and uh, maybe talk to maybe some younger listeners that we have about what you feel um, Christianity has done for you? Yeah, I, I think that um, Christianity and, and my decision to follow Christ has really transformed my outlook on life, my, uh, my view of other people. And, you know, there might be one or two people that will disagree with that, but <laughs> uh, always, we always have moments... I think personality-wise I'm quite different now than I was, say, uh, half a lifetime ago. Much more open, more outgoing, more willing to um, work with people and and tolerate their foibles because I realised that, uh, you know, everyone is eccentric except for myself. Uh, And I feel my, my whole... My whole purpose in life has changed. You know, uh, partly as a result of that bus accident, I've been left with uh, a physical disability of sorts. But uh, I think anyone out there needs to know that no matter what side of the tracks you come from, uh, no matter what sort of disadvantage you may have, uh, God can really turn around your life and uh, enable you to uh, really reach your full potential, whatever your strengths and weaknesses may be. So, yeah, I think that's probably the biggest impact on my life. And really, I wish that I'd made some of those decisions much earlier in life. Mm. In fact, you feel like that uh, you always feel as if following Christ is going to be a restriction but in fact it uh, it's made my life much more interesting and fulfilling Hmm. Ian would you like to pray for our listeners and with a special reference to those who may have not yet made the decision who are contemplating the decision to be Christians and um, are just not quite sure what that is going to mean for them I wonder if you just pray for those people that God would help them to overcome their fears and anxieties about a commitment to him and that um, they'll be able to enjoy the same experience that you've had of having your life changed. Mm. Sure, Barry. Father in heaven, I just want us all to pause a minute and, and just ask your blessing and guidance on our listeners. Father, it may be that Many are confused about life, 
uh, torn with conflicting philosophies. And Father, I just ask that each one of us may have the courage to uh, to look at the evidence for your existence. And Father, we may have the courage to give our lives over to your hands. Father, guide us and direct us this day that we may, all of us, be able to say that you have given us a fulfilling life. May we experience that abundant life that you offer. For Jesus' sake, amen. Thank you, Ian. And thanks for talking with me today. Sure, Barry. It's been uh, interesting and enjoyable. Thank you for having me. I'm Barry Harker and this is Life Learnings. I've been talking with Ian Barrett, clinical medical scientist, about his work and life. Remember to tune in again next time as I speak with another fascinating guest on Life Learnings. Until then, bye for now and God bless you and keep you. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio. If I could choose guests to visit me and dine with me, Jesus would be on the top of my list. This is where Revelation 3.20 comes in. Jesus is speaking. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Jesus is standing outside the door of every person's heart, waiting for an invitation to enter. He promises to respond to any who open the door to him. If you want the greatest experience of your life, and you haven't already done so, Invite Jesus into your heart and life today, just now.